Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Talk Recorded live. Hello, hello everybody. This is uh, Dr. Garcia speaking. Bill is on a conference call. We're helping some people rid themselves of cancer. Uh, hopefully, he'll be through in time to join us a little later on. But in the case that he is not, uh, let us progress. And uh, before we get started, let's um, let's cover both his and my tush. So the intention of this talk show is for information and educational purposes only. Any medical advice given on this show or read on either Bill Henderson's website, which is beating-cancer-gently.com, or Utopia Wellness's website, namely utopiawellness.com, should not be substituted for an actual visit with a medical provider. Since definite diagnosis and treatment are not being offered, there is no doctor-patient relationship. We encourage that you strongly consult your current medical staff if you perceive any of the information that you see either on our website or from this discussion be pertinent with you. Or you can contact me, Dr. Garcia, at 727-799-9060 to schedule a free, non-obligatory cancer consultation. Before we get uh, talking on today's topic, which should be the nervous system and why people need to address the nervous system when they have cancer, um, I, I want to talk about the free, non-obligatory cancer consultation that I offer. Because some of you, some of you have misconstrued my willingness to donate my time with a contractual obligation that I have to perform some service for you, which is not being offered. The, the best way to, to use my free time that I'm donating for you um, is for you, once you make an appointment, to sit down and make a chronological uh, series of events. I was healthy until blank. So let's take uh, let's take prostate issues. Um, I was healthy until about uh, four months ago, Doc. At that time, I began having difficulty urinating. I went to see my doctor. My doctor probably said it was a large prostate. He checked the PSA. Um, he said the PSA really wasn't that elevated, but it was close to being elevated. Um, he gave me some medication to try, see what would happen. Um, I, I used it. Things didn't get any better. I went back to my doctor. He referred me to a urologist. The urologist looked, did a, a PSA. The PSA was about four. The, the urologist then ordered a transrectal ultrasound. He then uh, decided to do biopsies, and the biopsies came back positive for cancer, and my stage is blankety-blank. Um, and uh, here's uh, what I decided to do afterwards. And, uh, you know, and that's, that's what I really need uh, from you, whether it's diagnosed and you chose not to do any allopathic or traditional treatment, 
or whether the story says, uh, eight years ago I was diagnosed with prostate cancer and I had a radical prostatectomy and my PSA went down to zero and then uh, two years later I was being followed up by PSA that went higher and then we did some radiation and then the PSA went back down to zero um, and then uh, my PSA is going up and I begin to have some bone pains and so the doctor said, oh, I've got metastatic disease to my bones and, uh, you know, the doctor said, well, gee, there's no hope for me, and, and so I'm calling you because I, I want to see there are other choices available to me. So whether it's something that's happened recently or something that's happened uh, historically, uh, that's really going to be very, very helpful to frame where our discussion goes as to what you've done and what you haven't done, because all choices have ramifications, whether they be good ramifications or bad ramifications. And it helps me frame my consultation with you, my advice to you on the telephone. So that's, preparing that is a very, very useful uh, piece of uh, information to allow us to, uh, to spend our 15 or 20 minutes. Um, be cognizant of the fact that I have usually anywhere from five to eight people calling me and speaking with me. Um, and I do need breaks between patients because I, I I have issues, and I also have uh, issues being like I have to go to the bathroom and, and, you know, eat lunch or something to that effect, drink water, and I also have patients that are here that also require my time, so I'm splitting my time up between my patients that are here that require that and the people that I'm donating my, my time to. Um, so, that, that's, so that's one issue, so please be cognizant that, that you know, we're going to be talking maybe 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, some of you, um, even after 35 or 40 minutes, uh, get angry with me because I say, look, um, I, I have somebody else to speak with, and, and you think that I'm obligated to speak to you until you're satisfied, and that's not, that's not a free consultation. You want to come and you want to pay for a consultation and spend an hour with me, then you're welcome to do so. Uh, but I'm donating the time. It's a donation. Please understand that. Um, so that's one issue. Um, that I want people to really understand um, and, and please be cognizant. The more information you give me, the more, the more helpful I can be towards you. Um, and frequently when people tell me uh, something that isn't uh, true, I will stand there and correct you. I will say, no, this isn't true. And people get upset and they think that that's cantankerous of me or challenging of me or doing something um, that is uh, counterproductive. And what's really counterproductive is when somebody sees you doing something that isn't correct that you think you've mastered and says you haven't. So, for example, many, or actually not many, but a few of you who call think that you're so zen, that, that everybody is so peaceful, that they've worked out all their issues, and it comes across that you're really fooling yourself and uh, I, I guess the bottom line is if when people are truly zen, they don't react. So if you're reacting, because we talk about a lot, a lot of different issues when we're having this, this uh, conversation, if you're reacting to something I say, people to react to things that are still alive and well. Uh, for example, if you have a, uh, a cut on your skin and it has not healed and you pour some alcohol on it, you will react because it usually stings or burns. So when you react and you get really PO'd about something that I may say, 
it's usually because that has not been as well cared for or taken uh, or addressed as you may think it has been addressed. And my job is not to get you angry. My job is to try to show you where your kinks in your armor are um, because a lot of times people um, believe that they've accomplished something and then other people present a different facet that they've missed and they get upset because you know they think once and done. I've addressed X, I've done it once, and, and that should be taken care of. Um, so um, these are, are issues. We're not here to um, argue with you. Uh, but we're also not here to mislead you by agreeing when you believe you've mastered something and I challenge that mastery and you basically show me that you have not. I mean, you ultimately realize that it's your choice because it's your body and I respect that. But it's also um, an issue that patients need to understand that if I agree with you, then the retort is, well, if you knew that I wasn't, so Zen, why didn't you tell me? I'd rather have a conversation showing you that you're not Zen versus understanding that you weren't and not challenging you um, for what that's worth. Um, life isn't perfect. I'm not perfect. I can't be everybody's doc. Um, and at the end of the day, the one person that I must live with is myself. So when all else fails, I must be true to myself and my beliefs as well as yours. And I respect your beliefs. Um, but I am not bound to endorse when you're misleading yourself. So that's uh, something I want everyone to sort of get a handle on as far as the consultations. Um, I like to keep it down to about 15 to 20 minutes and no more. Um, the more concise you are, the more information I can uh, convey for you, uh, the more information I have about what you've done prior to talking to me, the better the consultation will go for you because it will give me an idea of what may be wrong, what other issues may not be addressed um, or overlooked by traditional uh, doctors in your quest to regain your health. Uh, our job, or speaking for myself, but I'm sure Bill agrees, our job is to help you heal. We, Bill and I, cannot heal anyone except Bill can heal Bill and Carlos can heal Carlos. And I can help Bill with things he doesn't see, and Bill can help Carlos with things Carlos doesn't see. And, and that's what we are because we try not to be perfect because we know we're not, and we try our best. And sometimes we succeed and sometimes we don't. But the effort is there to do the very best that both Bill and I can do. Um, so we were talking about issues that are germane. And one of the issues that is germane is uh, whether or not people have had surgery. Now, people look at surgery, hold on for a sec. I had to wet my whistle. People look at surgery and, and they think of surgery as just whatever is being addressed by the surgeon, whether it be an appendectomy or a hysterectomy or, or cancer surgery or what have you. But having been an anesthesiologist, <clears throat> um, one of the things that was never taught to anybody in anesthesia is the correct positioning of the cervical spine. Now, this is crucial because whereas we have one brain, what we do have is um, two nervous systems. Um, one nervous system is the sympathetic nervous system. 
The sympathetic nervous system is the one that we use every day. It allows us to um, uh, selectively walk to a, a specific location, say the closet, open up the door at our will, uh, scan our, our clothes, and pick, mix, and match whatever it is we choose to do so, and then proceed to put them on our bodies. All that is a, a voluntary conscious effort, um, at least if you're not on Ambien, um, allegedly. And we, we do that uh, willingly. But there's a whole other nervous system that flourishes within our system that is totally working 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days of our lives behind the scenes without our awareness. And this is called the autonomic nervous system. So the autonomic nervous system is a system that controls all the things that we normally um, we want to have happen, but we really don't know how to control them. And these things are, for example, breathing while we sleep, uh, digestion of food that we consume, uh, heart rates and um, velocity of the, of the rate and the rhythm that we have, um, whether or not we secrete excessive amounts of gastric acid or not, uh, and so forth and so on. So uh, most, most people for expediency are, uh, are given general anesthetics. Um, they basically uh, are put to sleep, a tube is put in their throat, uh, the anesthesiologist uh, positions them on the table in the appropriate uh, position. They um, they are then given um, volatile gases, in other words, gases that allow them to maintain uh, coma. Uh, anesthesia is, by definition, the induction of coma. Coma is defined as the um, the lack of a response to a noxious stimulus. So uh, getting cut by a, a scalpel qualifies as a noxious stimulus. Uh, anyone who's ever been cut at the, at the kitchen understands that being cut is no fun. And usually you're followed by owie or moving the finger away from whatever um, and um, followed by bleeding and, and whatever the ramifications may be. So um, when you're doing surgery, you're certainly being stimulated. You're certainly being cut. You're certainly having a lot of issues that are going on. And the job of a good anesthesiologist is to make sure that the surgeon has uh, the least squirmy as possible patient from the surgeon's vantage point so the surgeon can cut correctly and stitch correctly. From the patient's vantage point, to be oblivious to the pain and whatever conversations are going on in the operating room, some which may pertain to asking for instruments such as scalpels and clamps and Kellys and so forth and so on, uh, versus, uh, you know, whatever is going on in the news or whatever somebody wants to talk about because doing surgery, uh, everyone talks about uh, not only what's going on in the operation, uh, but uh, what's going on in life. If everything is going hunky-dory according to plan, then people are more relaxed and more apt to talk about whatever is going on with life. If things are serious, then the operation tend to be, uh, uh, operating rooms tend to be very quiet and um, a very uh, succinct as to uh, what people are asking for and what they're not asking for um, so that we can, uh, uh, you know, focus on the issues. And, and frankly, what you really want is, is a, a nice uh, professional attitude where everyone is relaxed uh, talking about the weather and talking about their golf game 
as they proceed doing um, their routine, um, un unexciting, rather dull procedures because when you get excitement, it's usually bad for the patient. So in the process of, of inducing the anesthetic, uh, one of the things that most anesthesiologists, if not all of them do with a general anesthetic, is that they um, induce a muscle relaxant. Now, what a muscle relaxant does is inhibits the ability of your muscles to contract. So, again, we don't want it to contract or react to pain, which is going to be something that you do subconsciously. Um, if you get hit in the belly, you, belt, you, know, you bend over. Uh, muscles have to contract and muscles have to relax, and all sorts of things happen rather quickly when, when you're in discomfort and, you know, you're bent over because you have diarrhea or what have you. Um, so the whole purpose here is that these reflexes are obtunded by anesthetics. And so you don't have the ability to protect yourself. Now, most of you have, I'm sure, witnessed um, TV programs that show time-lapse photography of people asleep. And you see them uh, sleeping on their back, then turning on the right side, turning on their left side, turning over, uh, flipping over, flipping, you know, doing whatever they want to do. Uh, and, and people think that that's like restless. It, it really isn't restless because take the other extreme. Uh, someone who cannot move for whatever reason and is now in a nursing home rehabbing because of uh, whatever reason and the person lays on his or her back for a protracted period of time, if you lay on your back and you don't take the pressure off your back, then you eventually develop a pressure sore at that point which suffers the greatest amount of pressure. So um, uh, the, the whole issue here is that it's important for us to be able to turn from side to side on a, on a timely basis, and our body calculates this, okay? It notes when there's too much, too much weight, and then you flip over, you don't even think about it, you don't wake up from your sleep, it doesn't require your participation, your body does it automatically. When you have an anesthetic, you're laid in the appropriate position. For example, if you're having hip surgery, you're usually on either your right side down or your left side down. If you're having brain surgery, the part of the brain is being exposed, you're either upside down or, or sitting up. Um, whatever the issue may be, you're, you're involved in it. Um, when, also, when you're anesthetized, your ability to, to react to, to being prolonged in one position, to being exposed to one position, is obtunded by the anesthetic. So what winds up happening here, um, is that you cannot protect yourself from a discomfort. Now, most, in fact, I've never been involved in an operation long enough to cause a pressure sore. So pressure sores are really not the issue here. Um, but what is the issue here is that when we relax all the muscles, what happens is that our skeleton becomes relatively limited to its structural integrity by the ligaments. However, what happens is that because the muscles are, are relaxed, the muscles can't help the ligaments stay, and the ligaments can be lengthened, can be stretched by gravity alone. 
And one of the ligaments that's usually been pretty much banged up by the time you get to be, oh, let's say 25, is the ligaments in the cervical spine. So if you play football, if you have skied, if you have had slips and falls or played soccer or basketball or any, any, really, any, uh, any sport, uh, you've been jostled because every time you slid into home plate, there was a, about a one and a half to two pound bowling ball at the top of your uh, of your of your body that uh, sort of kept going a little bit longer, and you had to hold it, hold it back. Um, you know, the, it, basically, whiplash is the bowling ball going forward when the rest of your body stops. That's why they have headrests. Um, and that's why they then invented the uh, airbags, is to deal with the whiplash more than anything else. The rest of your body is pretty much held into your car by the uh, three-point restraint system. So since this bowling ball gets to be jostled, um, it gets jostled when you go um, running uh, cross-country, it gets jostled when you take your bicycle cross-country, it gets jostled every time you fall, it gets jostled every time that you do whatever it is that has some sort of minor trauma and it accumulates over time, the ligaments of the cervical spine um, get lengthened. And so when you're anesthetized and all your muscles are relaxed because your muscles, in, when you're awake, are going in there to try to help those ligaments not move too much. And the reason is because as those ligaments move, as those bones move in your, in your uh, cervical spine, what happens is that some of the nerves can get pinched. And when the nerves get pinched, it's like when you used to have the old-fashioned cars that had to roll down windows uh, that you cranked down and, and didn't go down all the way. You put your, your funny bone um, on that window ledge that, that was there, and what would happen would be that you would get a, a sharp electrical current going down usually to your uh, pinky and your uh, ring finger. And that's because you've now stimulated the nerve, and when nerves are stimulated, they discharge. They, they send off a current, and it tells you, hey, you're putting pressure on me, get it off. Well, you can't do that when you're anesthetized. And so when you position the person in, on the table, on the anesthesia table, we don't have, what we should have, is, is a, a cushion that basically outlines the cervical spine to the patient's um, topography so that we can keep it there. And, and they have these available. It's made out of bean, and then just have the patient lay over there, and then you can just suck out uh, the bean, and it will give you structural integrity of whatever it is that, that the patient had at the time. But again, even I was ignorant of all this 20 years ago, because I've been doing this for 20 years now. Um, and so the whole purpose is that, that when you're anesthetized and you're not positioned correctly, um, your cervical one and cervical two go out of alignment uh, in many cases, and, and patients present with all sorts of weird complaints or symptoms that um, most of us, myself included, were totally oblivious to until I finally uh, learned about and taught myself about cervical one and cervical two. So the autonomic nervous system, that nervous system that basically deals with um, the organs that we don't think about and process uh, all this information on a second-by-second on a second basis is now pinched off. And so depending on what gets pinched, which part of the autonomic nervous system gets pinched, depends on what symptoms you develop, and that makes total sense. So 
um, you can, when you wake up, uh, many people sometimes wind up with indigestion, gastritis that they didn't have before. Um, again, cervical one, cervical two is malaligned. Um, anybody who complains of acid reflux is, usually has cervical one, cervical two malaligned. And and so you go back to your doctor and say, hey, you know, I listened to this guy on the radio and, and you know, this other doctor says cervical one, cervical two is out. They go get a CAT scan and say, ah, you know, it looks great. Because what they're looking for is what is called in medicine gross changes. Gross means obvious. It's big. It's not gross as in, oh, yucky. It's gross as in, uh, boy, you know, the forearm should be going straight and it's at a 30-degree angle. Boy, he's really got a bad break. You don't need to go to medical school to figure out that the arm's broken. But what we're talking about here is subtle shifts in cervical one, cervical two, with respect to the skull that pinches certain branches of the autonomic nervous system affecting different issues. So we start with basically ability to swallow, ability to secrete gastric juices, um, ability to secrete digestive enzymes, uh, liver function, gallbladder function, intestinal function, diarrhea, constipation, um, kidney function, uh, bladder function, um, rectal function. All these things are part of the autonomic nervous system. Now, there's another one that is really a, a real uh, a difficult case that most people find very difficult to uh, relieve, which is called uh, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, um, or known as RSD. Uh, reflex sympathetic dystrophy is when the autonomic nervous system um, gets pinched that affects the skin, uh, usually either on the right hand or the left, uh, right arm, left arm, or right leg, or lower leg. It could be at any part of the body. And reflex sympathetic dystrophy is very interesting. If you if you put a lot of pressure on the on the arm, like a handshake, for someone who's got reflex sympathetic dystrophy, they usually tolerate that okay. What they cannot tolerate is if you take uh, purse your lips and blow lightly on their skin, that drives them crazy. And, I mean, it's a very serious crazy. We're talking about significant pain, bringing people to tears, and in fact, some people, in order to try to rid themselves of such a discomfort, have amputated extremities because of reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Interestingly enough, I had a gentleman who flew down from Maine after six months of being treated traditionally for reflex sympathetic dystrophy. He, he sat in my office, and he told me what his problem was. And literally within five minutes, I said, what you have is cervical one, cervical two malaligned. And he was like, what are you talking about? I said, explain everything, how things had been jostled. And, and he had had actually an operation prior to it. And I said, it probably happened when you were anesthetized on the operating room table. I then sent him to a massage therapist to lengthen the shortened muscles in his neck and to adjust um, his cervical one, cervical two to a chiropractor to get him aligned. He came back the next day with tears of relief that literally um, between the massage therapist and the acupuncturist, and I, I sent him to a person who had a massage therapist who was an acupuncturist, and I asked him to do exactly what I wanted done, and he did. The person came back, and all his RSD, his reflex sympathetic dystrophy, was all gone. 
So reflex sympathetic dystrophy, in my opinion, is a relatively simple um, symptom to correct because it's not a problem, it's a symptom. The problem is that they're pinching off that particular bundle that innervates the arm or the legs, causing them to react uh, with great deal of pain when they're just minimally stimulated. And that's the key with reflex sympathetic dystrophy. It's, it's not being touched like you would when you're being a shaking of a hand. It's when you blow on it um, very lightly with a light breeze, uh, the caressing of the, of, the, uh, of the cloth from a shirt or a blouse uh, causes excruciating pain. Uh, there are usually nail changes associated with the reflex sympathetic dystrophy. Um, so all these things are, are to be taken into consideration uh, with reflex sympathetic dystrophy. And again, traditional medicine goes to the drugs, goes to the surgeries. If you have surgery and you have re reflex sympathetic dystrophy, you may actually be able to negate the ability to make the adjustments depending on what kind of surgery you have had done in order to try to correct the problem. So most problems tend to have a cervical one, cervical two involvement. And when you have cancer, many patients who come to me have had surgery. And then they start adding, well, I've got this pain and that pain and this other pain. And again, nobody talks about cervical one, cervical two being a key component when it comes to the uh, addressing of the symptomatology that appears to happen in addition to um, the cancer that is evident and present. So um, uh, cervical one, cervical two, if you've got cancer, if you've had surgery of any kind, is something that you should go to a massage therapist, have them say, hey, look at my, um, look at my uh, cervical spine. Please uh, lengthen all my muscles to appropriate length. Um, and also, please understand that by the time that you have this problem, you probably have had it for a while uh, because most people are, are trained to, well, I've had a problem, I'll go see my, my, uh, my surgeon or my doctor, and that usually takes seven days. And so by the time that somebody kind of crawls around my neighborhood, um, they've usually had this issue for about six weeks or more, um, and so they're expecting miracles. And as I told the gentleman who flew down from Maine, um, we're going to treat you for about uh, three or four times to keep you into alignment because uh, the body adapts to the circumstance. So if you've already had about three to six months of malposition cervical one, cervical two, your muscles have um, adapted to that new anatomic alignment. And what we're doing is we're stretching it, but the muscle memory is to return to the the bad or the previous alignment. So what we really need to do is to make sure that the alignment stays um, in place and the patient should not be discouraged if it goes out of alignment and, go, and he, his symptoms come back. Um, his symptoms, in fact, may not come back. Another part of the autonomic nervous system may get pinched and he may develop, again, gastritis or constipation or diarrhea or, or kidney dysfunction or bladder dysfunction or or, uh, or whatever dysfunction from the internal organs. <clears throat> and again, you should understand that it's going to take a few sessions usually to get things back into alignment and getting them back in shape. 
with that in mind, one of the things that I recommend a lot of people do, I have two of them, is that they buy an inversion table. I think that buying an inversion table is the best thing I ever did. Personally speaking, um, I get on the inversion table, um, and, and everybody's like, oh, my God, am I going to fall off? Now, these things are pretty well engineered nowadays so that people don't fall off. Um, what I do is I, I get I, I go from the standing position to the bed position uh, parallel to the uh, floor, and then I invert myself so my head's down, my feet are up, and usually it takes about 30 seconds for me to relax. Um, some things may may go back into alignment through gravity. This is gravitational traction. It's basically what it is. And what I do is then I go back to the bed position, and then I go back after about 10 seconds or 15 seconds in the in the parallel to the floor position, go back with my head down, and then what I simply do is I just take my um, my left ear and, and touch my left shoulder with it, and then my right ear touch my right shoulder with it, and usually a lot of snap crackles and pops may happen if they need to go back into shape. Uh, frequently, I see. Uh, I notice a great deal of relief in the thoracic area and the cervical area. I usually feel better, but I'm pretty much in touch with my body. And then I go back to the, um, the neutral position, the bed position parallel to the floor, um, because if I go from the head down to the head up position too quickly, I'm afraid that potentially I could have uh, a fainting spell and, and break both my chins, which I don't want to do. So by going to the neutral or the bed position, then I can easily put, put myself in the erect position and get myself out of the uh, inversion table. Um, you know, people are welcome to do as they please. That's basically the way I do it. And, and I usually use the inversion table um, three times a week, four times a week, by inverting upside down and, and stretching my ligaments so that my body can recoup and function much better. It's a matter of maintenance. And, and this is what people don't get, is that you want to maintain your body. And, and having cancer, depending, of course, where your cancer is, may or may not be a contraindication to using this. You should consult your your practitioners to, to see what they have to say. And most people don't understand about, about um, the inversion table. Uh, but cervical 1 and cervical 2 are very crucial if you're having issues with your bowels, issues with your stomach, issues with digestion, um, any issues involving the organs, one of the, and you've had surgery, or if you've had a very, very active uh, pre-cancerous or pre-problem lifestyle, you should go and um, find somebody who's competent uh, and have them evaluate your cervical one, cervical two area. Um, not top of my list are the MDs. The DOs may be better because um, they were more exposed to the chiropractic um, environment, and these were not. Um, I am an MD, um, but I think that the modern, as you say, the, the more recent uh, graduates of, of uh, Doctor of Osteopathy are being led away from the chiropractic natural way and more into the traditional pharmaceutical interventional mold, uh, so that everyone can get the same um, the same jello. So um, that's for that's worth. Uh, the other issue that I'm seeing more and more of. Is um, is osteoporosis and how to deal with osteoporosis and and one of the one of the issues that happens with osteoporosis again involves the nervous system. Um, our brains are, are phenomenal computers, if you will. Um, 
and they get feedback and they send instructions provided that your cervical spine is aligned. Um, and so what happens is that um, there are certain weaknesses of certain areas of the bone. So when people are diagnosed with osteoporosis or osteopenia, preferably osteopenia, because it's just the beginning, if osteopenia is left unabated, it, um, it will progress to osteoporosis. By the way, uh, taking calcium supplements is about as useful as breast on a bull, in my opinion. And the reason is that you need uh, um, a parathyroid hormone in order to absorb the calcium in um, from your gut. So, uh, you know, it's, it, a lot of the doctors will tell you take the calcium, but, but calcium is readily available in just about any food source that you consume. So if you're exposed to calcium, and, and anybody who has a reasonable diet in America is exposed to calcium, and you're diagnosed with osteopenia or osteoporosis, then it should be quite evident that you're not absorbing the calcium from the gastrointestinal tract. So you're consuming it, but you're defecating it out without absorbing it. And so what the body does is it needs calcium. It loses calcium in the process of just being your body. And... Um, so what the body does is it goes and it, to its calcium reserves, which is, guess what, your bones. And so the, the, the body goes to your bones and says, I need calcium, and it starts breaking down your bone so it gets the level of calcium, which is needed for every reaction needed that, that we have. So you use the calcium um, from the bones, and you develop first osteopenia, which is a, looks like a weakening of the bones, and then the osteoporosis, which is weak bones. So with that said, we need to, again, move forward and tell you that if you're going to deal with osteoporosis or osteopenia, how do we get your, your brain involved in secreting the appropriate hormones, which is parathyroid hormone um, or, um, and, and eventually calcitonin, to have your bones remineralized because if you have too much excessive, if you have excessive amounts of calcium circulating in your system, then your body produces another hormone uh, from the thyroid gland called calcitonin that helps deposit or mineralize that calcium, that excessive calcium, um, onto your bones. So um, what we really need to do is stimulate um, the parathyroid release. And how do we do that? Well. When people are diagnosed with osteopenia or osteoporosis, I ask them to buy a rebounder. What's a rebounder? Well, a rebounder is about a, a three-foot-wide diameter um, um, trampoline that I tell people put it in some safe place so that if you kind of lose your balance, you don't go flying off and cracking your head open. Um, I leave, I'll let you decide where a safe place is. Um, and then bounce for about 10 minutes. Um, it does two things. One, it's not impact. Because the, the uh, trampoline gives yield to you, uh, it's a, a low impact at the very worst, a no impact at the very best. And basically what it starts doing, it starts telegraphing to your brain where you are uh, weak, which, which of your long bones are weak. 
and more overly where it needs to deposit those extra amounts of calcium, where it needs to fortify your bone. And it fortifies your bone by depositing or remineralizing calcium. So when people are diagnosed with osteoporosis or osteopenia, by getting a rebounder, you start stimulating the, the interface between your bones and your brain, and it takes about 10 minutes a day. And then your, your brain starts getting the information as to which, which parts of your body needs to be uh, structurally reinforced with calcium, and it starts secreting miraculously enough the parathyroid and then eventually the calcitonin. Now, for those people who don't want to do a rebounder, another great way that I have found to uh, mineralize bones um, came from the fact that I had the world's largest chelation clinics about um, circa 10 years ago. And um, what chelation is is the infusion of a man-made amino acid called EDTA. And what EDTA does is um, bind calcium, among other elements. And um, I used it for um, basically removing, basically like using it as a chemical bloater rooter uh, or chemical draino to basically broaden the uh, vascular uh, tree, the arterial tree, uh, from arterial sclerosis. And it, it works miraculously well in about 85% of all patients that I treated. Um, I supervise the better part of about 85,000 chelations. Um, in those years that I had the largest clinics. Um, and what we found out was that once you start, once you stop chelating, or once you were using chelation, once you dropped the calcium level in the bloodstream, interestingly enough, what the body responded with, and, and remember, these patients that I was treating were above 55 years of age, by and large, very few youngers, young, youngsters that came in to, um, to treat preventatively. So, when we were um, doing the chelation therapies, what we noticed is that the calcium, the serum calcium dropped some, and then the uh, parathyroid glands began secreting um, parathyroid hormone, and the calcium levels began to rise, and the bone mineralization began to increase. So interestingly enough, uh, one of the benefits of chelation therapy is, is the reinforcement, the remineralization of, of bone because what happens is that the parathyroid hormones would be secreted. That means that the intestinal tract would be prompted to absorb the calcium. The calcium levels in the blood would increase past the threshold, which resulted then in a release of the calcitonin uh, from the thyroid gland uh, to mineralize the bones. And the patients, the many patients that were diagnosed with either osteoporosis or osteopenia, when they went back, their bones were actually mineralized because the uh, deposit, the calcitonin aspect of the of the uh, of the program, and the parathyroid uh, hormone release last several months once it's stimulated. And so chelation worked very very well at managing to um, remineralize the bones. And, and again, if we have bony issues. Uh, bone metastases, and we need to get those bones remineralized. Uh, chelation therapy is one of the one of the great uh, vehicles available to help the body start reabsorbing the calcium. Um, in my opinion, all the, the medicines associated or touted to help facilitate uh, calcium deposits don't work. Um, I think chelation is a much better 
uh, modality to um, help mineralize the bones, help the calcium levels get higher uh, in the serum and throughout the body to make the bodies work well. Excuse me here for a sec. <clears throat> so, um, uh, chelation is one of the one of the tools that we use here in helping people rid themselves of cancer because we do need the calcium because calcium is is essential for many um, chemical reactions. Um, when I was doing anesthesia, one of my mentors, one of my teachers, um, said to me that, uh, and he was shoot, and this goes back almost. Uh, close to 40 years ago, but um, anyway, 30, 35 years ago. So he's been practicing, by the time I met him, he's been practicing for about 20, 25 years. Um, and he told me, so it made his practice uh, at the late late 50s, early 60s. And back then, the technology was nowhere close to what it is today. And it, one of his best pieces of, of advice was, when in doubt, his number one go-to drug when patients were not doing well in the operating room uh, was to go to calcium because intravenous calcium was a very good way to help the body rebound and help it function much, much better. And he was absolutely correct. Um, and again, in some patients that have um, osteopenia and osteoporosis, we can give them calcium drips to uh, artificially raise their calcium. Calcium chloride is my, my uh, compound of choice. Um, so that the body can have the excessive amounts of calcium necessary to mineralize the bone. Again, calcium metabolism and the hormone release is, again, affected by cervical 1, cervical 2. So, again, it's a full full um, circle, a complete circle of, of looking at the entire human body when you're going to treat not just for cancer, but when you're going to treat for anything. And if something's a chronic issue, then it's, something that's been present for a long time. Um, and so one needs to start looking at what is the common source? What is the root cause of the chronicity? Why does, why does the body hold on to some sort of, um, of illness or symptoms for such a long period of time? Because the body doesn't do things uh, frivolously. The body does things because it's either prompted to do so or because uh, there's an issue that needs to be addressed. Um, so. If you have cancer, if you've had surgery without cancer, I mean, uh, my suggestion is please go uh, find a very competent massage therapist, explain to him that um, you know something about cervical one, cervical two, and the autonomic nervous system. You don't have to be an expert on it. Um, ask him or her to evaluate your neck, massage your neck, lengthen all the muscles because you can't shorten them. When, when the muscles are short on one side and lengthened on the other, it's because there's been some sort of disfigurement. Um, so that you can wind up being um, or functioning as best as you possibly can when it comes to um, giving your body the, the resources that you can use in order to heal. Uh, the... Um, Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? 
Oh, a book club! Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry, we were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right, ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchases, over limited by law, 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.